Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 618 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, March the 7th, 2011. And uh, we got a good show today. It's Monday, so that means it's your show. This is where you send emails to jack at the survival podcast.com. Again, you send that email to jack at the survival podcast.com. In the subject line, you put question for Jack, and then you give me your question in one to two sentences. And if you want to give me a book of information about your question, do that after you give me your question, and I just might get uh, the screening done and get your question in queue to get on the air. Uh, I want to say again today, like I say uh, on occasion, I can't possibly do everybody's question by email. Uh, I really want to suggest that if you have a question, you consider uh, picking up the phone, calling 866-65-THINK. I have about a 90% call-to-show ratio there. In fact, I'm thinking about maybe changing Mondays to call-in shows as well, eventually in the future. And uh, the reason is because my email fills up constantly. And I'm not saying I don't want it. I'm just saying, like, the variety is not there. I get so many emails. This is what Congress is doing. This is this poison here. This is this guy says this there. And it's so much negative focus, it's not really a question. And um, if you're sending me stuff like that, don't stop. I just I try to make this show about solutions. And, and when all I have is the negative to report, sometimes it's hard to make a Monday show about solutions. So I called a lot to try to get some actual questions out of the uh, the email box today instead of just a look what somebody's doing somewhere that's screwing things up. And we even have some of that. We do need to talk about that. So don't take this wrong. I'm just kicking this around in my head for now. But uh, anyway, we'll get to these questions here in a second. I have a really big announcement today. I'm going to go ahead and get it out of the way up front. And I realize this is probably 10 to 20% of the audience that really cares about this. Um, but if you own a business, if you have a blog uh, that you're trying to make money with, if you're thinking about starting a business, you probably really enjoyed uh, the podcast I did with Gary Vaynerchuk. Well, Gary's really trying to get his new book, The Thank You Economy, uh, onto the bestsellers list as fast as possible. And he's doing all kinds of things. So he called me up and said, could we work a deal? Uh, to get my audience to uh, maybe buy more than one copy each. In fact, five copies. So here's how this works. And I'll put out a blog post later today and then, and then go back to this episode and link, and I'll be mentioning this all week. If you'll buy five copies in a single order of the Thank You Economy and email your receipt to Gary at VaynerMedia.com, and again, I'll have this all in the show notes for you in a blog post about how to do it, and copy me, CC it to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com so I can keep track of this, Everybody that buys five copies of the Thank You Economy, you say, what do I do with five copies? Keep one, give four away. If you already bought one, give all five away. Give them to every business contact you can think of. Anybody that you've ever networked with, that type of thing. Spread the message and get some goodwill in your business. But if you'll do that, it'll cost you about 70 bucks. And what will you get in return? Uh, you'll get a one-hour uh, session with Gary and I. Uh, where you can ask questions and have Gary privately, and this will not be published anywhere ever. And I'm going to do something to make it even better. Uh, I realize we could get 50 people or more, and not everybody's going to be able to ask individual questions and things. So for each 20 people that do this, I will run one two-hour session after Gary's session. Not the same day. They'll be staggered out over several weeks. Everybody is invited, but for each 20, I'll do one two-hour session. So if we got 100 people, um, I would do five two-hour sessions. And when my sessions, you can ask me very specific things because, you know, we've, we're going to have so many and so much time to work with. So uh, that's just extra. Gary did not ask me to do that. I just got to thinking, what if we get what if we get 60 TSPers to do this? 
and uh, you wanted to ask a question about your blog, your way. So come in, have the awesome session with Gary, ask him the high-level questions, and then I will do minutia, uh, not in a negative way, but a positive way with you after that. So I know that's not for everybody. Uh, but this is a big announcement. If if you want to do this, I would get on board with it. I don't know exactly how long we're going to allow people to participate. I don't know if we're going to chop it at a certain number or what have you. Uh, but this week, definitely all week long, you have to do it. Five copies of the Thank You Economy. Email a copy of your receipt to Gary at VaynerMedia and send a copy to me. All right? Uh, with that, I am going to do, I'm going to make the rest of the housekeeping very short today. I'm just going to take care of the sponsors today and leave everything else out. Sponsor of the day number one today, knifekits.com. I love knife kits because they let somebody like me who's really just kind of learning how to make knives, make knives. Because I can get kits that are almost completed and I have to do final fitting, sharpening, and things like that. But if you're a master bladesmith in need of raw materials, you can get everything you need there as well. Knife Kits is an awesome company. Check them out at knifekits.com. When we did the research to decide whether to take them as a sponsor or not, we went to all like the knife and blade making forums, and the opinions that people had and posts about them were absolutely through the roof. And after having them as a sponsor now for about six months, I can see why. Total number of complaints about knifekits.com from members of the audience, zero. That's pretty impressive because I know they're getting a lot of business from you guys because they've let me know that. Uh, so, again, check out KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, man, I love Sawtooth because they give me all that cool stuff so I can be tactical, you know. Magpaul, ba uh, Magpaul Magazines, Maxpedition Bags, everything you can think of in between. A lot of tactical stuff. Uh, really, the big thing with Sawtooth, though, is the level of service, how quick they ship, and if there's ever a hiccup, because, you know, there's, like, human beings that run, like, you know, UPS and uh, USPS and things like that, and if anything ever gets hicked up, hit, like a hiccup with shipping or whatever, they make it right, man, and they make it right so quick it's unbelievable. So check out Sawtooth Tactical for all your tactical needs in life. And with that, we'll go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, again, because of the Vaynerchuk uh, announcement, I wanted to keep it brief for you. So... Again, I, I'm actually kicking this idea around, and I want to hear from you guys. Let me know in the comments section today, uh, what are your thoughts on maybe doing a lot less of the email-type shows and doing more calls? And I think more calls might be a better thing to do. Remember, I started the emails uh, in the beginning because I did for the first year and a half, I did the show in a car, and it was impossible to do call-in shows. Um, and I, I like the emails, don't get me wrong, but maybe it's, One email for every show we, we pull out or something like that is like a little uh, side or something like that. Or maybe on the two call-in shows we do one or two emails or something. I don't know. Um, and maybe you guys hate the idea. And maybe you hate the idea so much I just keep doing them. It's up to you. But I'd like to hear your opinion. Do you, you, know, do you generally get more from the call-in shows or the email shows? Are they about the same? Uh, would you be upset if I started doing a lot less response to email on the air and focused more on the calls? Because, see, the calls to me usually end up with, Jack, what do I do about? Versus, look, here's what somebody's done. Just a thought, and maybe I'm just in a, in a mood this morning because I worked so hard last week. I, I don't know. Anyway, let's go ahead and get to that first email. And again, I, hopefully nobody will take that the wrong way, and I've dug some you know, proactive questions out. So this first one comes from Kevin. Jack, just listen to your episode on shotguns. Really enjoyed it. I'm a collector of firearms and getting into the survival mode. I'm on target to retire my only debt, my home mortgage, eight years early. I'm starting a garden this coming spring, and I have several firearms-related questions. Number one, what do you think about the imported Winchester 97 clones for a good all-around shotgun? Uh, it depends on what you mean by all around. The Winchester 97 um, was kind of the trench warfare shotgun of World War One. It was the weapon used to very great effect when you know uh, the opposing troops would get into the trenches and loaded with buck, and it would uh, it would just tear men apart at the ranges that you're talking about inside the trenches. And that's pretty much what it was for. It's also been called a riot gun. So if you mean by all around shotgun. All around is in, uh, for home defense, uh, tactical, things like that. Is it the best thing you could get? No. If you have other reasons for wanting it and would use it for defensive purposes, yeah, fine. Um, I don't think, if you mean all around, uh, I'm gonna go out and, um, you know, hunt doves with this thing or something like that and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe with a different choke on it, uh, go out and hunt ducks. Not that it won't work. It's just really not built for that. 
It, it's it's a very early version of a tactical shotgun. You've got the external hammer thing going on. You got the bolt coming out the rear. I mean, personally, if you wanted an all-around weapon, I look more at like a Mossberg, uh, Remington 870, a modern Winchester pump. And simply by swapping barrels out, you can get a lot of utility out of them if you're looking for an all-around gun. If you just like the thing and you want the thing, hey, it's proven, it's effective, it works. Um, there's nothing wrong with the, the, the clones that are out there or anything like that, so there's no reason to, to not buy one. But, again, if you mean all around in, in, in the way that I take all around, for, for field and, and home, uh, for tactical and practical, I, I would look to something else. Question two relates to AR-15s. I heard you say you bought a Smith & Wesson recently. My question is, did you buy a standard model or one with rails and lights and all that stuff on it? All the gun rags tell you you need to trick out your AR with all this stuff. Is that necessary or is it just a bunch of crap? Thanks for the show. Um, well, Kevin, I'll tell you what. What I bought was an M&P model, uh, which is a uh, 16-inch barrel, uh, so the short, short, shortest barrel you can get without a, uh, with an, you know, without it being considered an SBR and needing to uh, do the uh, the tax stamp. Uh and I, I bought it mainly to keep it the way that it is. It's uh, an A3 style receiver, which means it has the uh, the carry handle is able to be bolted on it or removed, so you could put optics on it if you wanted to. And uh, I plan to pretty much leave that carry handle on there. I did elect to do that over an A2 style receiver where the handle is actually integral, uh, just in case I ever changed my mind. Um, I am totally not with the complete crazy accessorization of ARs. If you want to do it, fine, go ahead. Um, maybe it's because I was in the military in you know from like '89 through '93, and we just carried M16s, and they were just wore what they were, and you know you you learn to shoot that weapon as it comes off the rack, and they they teach you to shoot it well. And you can sit in a foxhole or in the prone position and you can shoot pop-up targets that are the size of a man from the waist to his head at 300 meters and knock them down all day long. And I guess my question is, what more do you need? What, what more what more capability do you need than that? And all this stuff we put on the gun, all it starts to do, and I know it's supposed to be called a rifle, fools, the ones that are getting upset right now, but all this stuff we put on the gun, um, all it does is add weight and bulk. And I'm not really about that. Uh, I do see the purpose of lights on these things. Uh, so a, a, a tactical light with a pressure switch, I get that. I know some people say, just turn the light on in the house. I had a guy email me. He said, I was a police officer. We were taught just to turn the light on. It disorients the guy. doesn't give your position away. Yeah, what if you're not near a light switch? I mean, are you always going to be near a light switch? There's times when you need to illuminate the situation. And I, I, I am not big if you're, you know, once you, once you leave, leave the handgun realm, you go to shotgun, uh, or, 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 or carbine rifle, I, want that light mounted and I want a way to quickly illuminate my suspect and I want to be able to turn it back off. And the whole hand out to the side thing just doesn't work in that situation. I look at it this way. If you light a guy up and he's a legitimate threat and you have to shoot him, um, you should have, at that point, you should have every advantage in the world and be able to take out the threat if you need to. Again, if you want to put handles and lasers and this light on this side and that optic on this side. You know, it's your, your weapon. You do whatever you want to with it. I like them plain Jane. I really do. I also have um, an AR that is an old school, uh, basically A1 clone. Uh, it looks just like an M16A1 except it's an AR. And, um, I, I, you know, with the full length barrel and the old style Vietnam era hand grips on it. I love that weapon the way that it is too. And I that's just my opinion. And that's just my view. And I think that, you know, if you want to put a, an optics set on an AR, that's fine. If that's what you want to do with it. Uh, but for close quarters, um, you're talking about, you're barely even using sights at that point. You've got your large ghost ring uh, side of the sight. And I don't know, for me, it just makes more sense. Let's go ahead and... Uh, Take another call. It says, Hi, Jack. I'm looking to supply food for about six chickens. Chicken feed is about $13 a bag. Is there anything I can grow easily would feed them through the winter? I'm thinking amaranth. I have about a half acre I can garden, keep the chickens fed. Uh, could be hard during a shit at the fan situation. Well, first of all, um, one thing you need to realize, whenever you are 
um, storing food for yourself. You should be storing food for anything that depends on you. So one thing you should have is reserve chicken feed. You should have chicken feed so cheap. That's why we say, you know, I got it for chicken feed. We get a good deal on something. You should be able to store six months to a year worth of chicken feed for six chickens pretty daggone easily. So for most shit at the fan situations, you're you're in and out before it becomes a big deal. So not that I'm not going to give you an answer to your question. I'm just saying make sure you have at least a half a year to a year of reserve for your chickens at all times because, hey, you might plan on relying on them for eggs and things like that. If you're really concerned about sustainability, you probably need a, a rooster and, and, and some fertile hens uh, because you may need to uh, to resupply the flock long term as well if you're thinking that long. But as for cover crops uh, or crops that you can plant for them, amaranth would be good. Uh, amaranth, though, is going to fall into the summer, spring, fall crop that you allow to go to seed and let your chickens at it after it's gone to seed because it's not going to live through the very the first frost is going to kill it. So there are a lot of things that you could plant. You could plant an area for your chickens with you know in the winter, I mean in the summer or spring with like buckwheat, uh, cowpea. Uh, you can even do vetch early uh, in the spring, and it'll pretty much go into summer and, and produce some for you. Uh, but buckwheat, any of the stuff that would be a good uh, summer forage crop, uh, if you're depending on where you live, some of your clovers are fine through the summer, alfalfa. A lot of the stuff that you would plant for cattle or hogs will do very well for chickens. As you move into the winter, you're looking at things like your clovers again, uh, your bell beans, uh, favas would even be something that they would be interested in, but you don't want to dedicate too much space to that because they're a fairly large plant and they, they aren't going to produce beans for you uh, until the spring. And their chickens really are not going to be big on the favas as far as eating them. Uh, Austri Austrian winter pea would be a good winter crop. Your vetches, uh, caius oats, uh, all of these things. So like, let's see, you do a mix with something like bell bean, caius oat, uh, and, and vetch, and let the oats be a scaffold for the vetch, uh, would be some things that you could do. What I would basically do is, my favorite place to get seed like this is a place called uh, Peaceful Valley Farms. And their website is groworganic.com. And I would go there and take a look at all of their stuff listed as cover and pasture crops. And you can find what will grow well in your area. But one thing to remember about chickens is they're not just about the seed. They're also about the green. So a lot of your clovers, your crimson clover, your red clovers, your, you know, your low growing and your high growing clovers are good pasture for them as well. Anything that attracts a lot of insects is good for them. I, I don't think it's really just about getting them through, um, the winter. It's also about, you know, feeding them throughout the year. And with a half of an acre, you could paddock that into, uh, you know, like four paddocks. And pretty much rotate your chickens through there through a, a lot of the year and uh, get a lot of utility out of it that way. And and continue to add crops and, and seed things uh, at different times of the year they are going to provide a lot of feed for them. And that's going to bring a lot of insects as well in. And that's going to bring your chickens a lot of protein. With six chickens, I mean, you could do really well on, on a half acre. Uh, you're not asking for too much out of the land at all with that. Just some thoughts. Now, if you're wanting to store feed for them, uh, something like amaranth would be great. Uh, Golden Giant would be what I would recommend based on the different varieties I've, I've grown. And all you need to do with that is as the tops get big enough um, to, uh, to have the seed before it starts to fall, cut your tops off and store them in, in paper bags. And you don't have to worry about winnowing it or anything like that. You can just throw the whole tops out to your chickens, and they'll pick that stuff out of there. They love amaranth. Amaranth is good. Sunflower is good. You never want to overfeed sunflower to chickens. It'll actually make them uh, molt excessively and lose feathers, and they can actually make them very sick long term. So be careful with sunflower, especially black oil sunflower. Uh, tends to be uh, more in that case. But some sunflower would be good for them. Uh, anything you would eat, chickens will eat. So, I mean, you could even grow, you know... Uh, some some quinoa, uh, millet, anything like that. It's all about looking at your climate and growing the right thing for the right time of year. Let's go to another email. And on the note of, um, you know, worrying about food and storage and all that, here's a little piece of information we probably haven't heard a lot about on the news lately. Mexico loses 80 to 100% of crops to freeze. U.S. prices to skyrocket. 
How is this not on Fox News or MSNBC or what have you? Uh, here we go on Digital Journal. Mexico loses 80% of uh, crops to freeze. U.S. prices are skyrocketing. Houston, the cold weather experienced across much of the U.S. in early February, made its way into Mexico. Early reports estimate that 80 to 100% of crop losses, which are having an immediate impact on prices of U.S. grocery stores with more volatility to come. Wholesale food suppliers have already sent notices to supermarket retailers describing the produce losses in Mexico and the impact shoppers can expect. Cisco, Cisco's a huge uh, wholesaler of food, by the way, folks. Not Cisco like uh, the, the, the computer people, Cisco, S-Y-S-C-O, uh, sent out a release this week stating that early February freeze reached as far south as Los Muchos in the and south of Chulacan, uh, both located in the state of Sinaloa along the Gulf Coast of California. Freezing temperatures were the worst the region has seen since 1957. I thought we were having planetary warming. Uh, I know that's just that's just weather. It's not climate. Wait till you hear what I got on that later today, though. According to Cisco's notice they sent out this week, the early reports are still coming in, but most are showing losses of crops in the range of 80 to 100 percent. Even shade house products was hit by the extreme cold temperatures. It will take seven to ten days to have a clearer picture from growers and field supervisors, but the growing region ha haven't had a cold like this in over half a century. Uh, you can read the rest of the article. I will link to it in the show notes. I, I just brought this up. Not to say, hey, the world is ending. It's chicken little. The sky is falling. I, you know, that's not me. I'm just saying, you know, this is why it makes sense to grow your own food. This is why it makes sense to preserve your own food. This is why it makes sense to learn about hunting, gathering, and fishing, and bringing in additional food into your home. This is why it makes sense to store food long term. And I kind of want to use this as a springboard to remind you about some of the interviews we have coming up while I'm gone in Arkansas, setting it up uh, an office up there and getting a lot of our stuff moved up there, picking up a U-Haul today. We'll be loading it for the next day and a half, and we'll be taking about, I'd say 50% of our stuff will be in Arkansas by the end of this trip. Uh, but on Thursday this week, I have Steve Palmer of ShelfReliance.com on, and of course they do the rack systems and long-term food storage uh, foods with the Thrive brand. And I asked him about this thing with this basketball coming through uh, the, the, the wholesalers jacking up the price in the middle and consumers not seeing the price increase until it eventually works its way out. It's a pretty interesting insight on that. So make sure you tune in Thursday to hear Steve's interview. But, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the end of the world as we know it. And this is why I keep trying to push you guys back. I got so many of you guys emailing me and calling me that are concerned with the end of the world as we know it. And I'm saying pay attention to what we have going on in the world right now. You are going to pay more for your food tomorrow than you are today, and you're going to keep doing that for a long time to come. The United States has backed itself into an economic corner from which there is no escape. The flux that goes on between now and whatever solution we eventually you know, wake up, pull our heads out of our ass and come to, that period in the meantime is going to be very expensive for some people. And I'm saying get yourself in a position where you can get through this period of time and come out the other side stronger. In periods of change, in periods of flux, those that are prepared prosper and they grow exponentially as we come out of that change. Many people are damaged so much that it takes a generation to recover. And I'm saying instead of worried about road warrior... Let's worry about what's happening right now. This is just one example. Because these things begin to compound on each other. Because remember, we're already dealing with shortages from freezes in the fall last year in places like Canada. So you're going to start to see more and more restriction on food supply. And that's not going to mean you can't get fed. It doesn't mean you're going to starve to death. It means that everything you buy is going to cost more. All right, next question. Hey, Jack, Dan from South Dakota here. Uh, I'm planning on buying a five-pack of hazelnuts, filberts, from Rain Tree Nursery. I believe they are a bare root plant. My question is, should I plant them directly in the ground or start them in large pots until they take? I plan on planting them along a back fence to create a privacy hedge. All right, great idea. Love filberts for a privacy hedge. South Dakota, I I don't know on your temps there. It depends on what part of South Dakota you're in. But if you're in the right zone for the plants, uh, as Rain Tree specs them, you're going to be fine. Um, I think you should be in, in most of the state. Uh, let me real quick, before I sound stupid, check the uh, zone rating for filberts. Actually, you're pushing it. Most of South Dakota is zone 4. Uh, very small pieces of it are zone 5. And uh, the filberts that you're looking at in particular, I just pulled them up on Rain Tree's site, 
or a zone five and above plant. That doesn't mean you can't make it work, um, but you're really going to have to provide some level of protection in the winter, really heavy mulching of the root systems and things like that during the winter. Um, I don't know if this is going to work for you. You might want to look at something different for this. But let me answer the question because it doesn't matter whether it's filberts or anything else. When you're planting any tree, bush, vine, anything with a perennial root system, if it's at all possible, you want to get it into the ground as quickly as you can. You do not want to plant it into a pot, develop a huge root system in that pot, and then put it in the ground. That doesn't mean you shouldn't buy you know, plants that have already grown in pots to a certain size and are being sold as four-year-old trees or whatever. Um, it means that when you do that, you have to be very concerned about something called circling and girdling root syndrome. And what happens is these trees send these roots out to the edge of the pot. And when that root gets to the edge of the pot, it doesn't stop growing. It turns and it begins to grow the only direction that it can in a circle. And when you pull a tree out of a pot, you really need to get the dirt off of the roots and you need to trim the roots so that they're only growing outward. And that's one of the advantages of a bare root tree or bush or shrub. You don't have to worry about that. It's pretty much been done for you. But when you have those pots where that tree's been in there a couple of years, boy, you've really got to get those roots cleaned out and pruned out. Because if you don't, here's what can happen. You put that tree in the ground and that circular root just continues to grow circularly. It'll send out laterals, but you end up with roots circling the tree. Now over time, the tree continues to grow and its trunk thickens. Eventually, the root of the tree can come into contract because you think of the tree trunk up, roots down. But what happens is trees over time, they grow a taproot. And that taproot, if you dug the tree up, it almost just looks like the tree continues into the ground, like the stump goes straight down. And that is part of the overall trunk system of the tree, especially up in the top, you know, 6 to 12 inches uh, of earth. Well, that root can eventually completely circle the trunk, and the tree will grow into the root, and the root will go into the trunk. And when any tree needs to survive is what's called its cambium. The cambium is the little green layer. If you peel bark off a tree... You'll see wood and bark, and in between them you see this very thin layer of green living tissue. And that cambium is necessary for the tree to stay alive. You want to kill a tree? Get a saw, cut maybe a quarter inch deeper than the bark in a circle all the way around it, and nine times out of ten you'll kill the tree. That's all that it takes, because that cambium gets cut off. It's like somebody cutting off your blood vessels. It's exactly what it is. That's where everything gets up into that tree through that cambium. So when you have circling, girdling roots, and they go into that cambium, they can kill your tree. Your tree basically chokes itself to death. So never grow trees in pots unless that's your only alternative. If you can get them into the ground, get them into the ground. Times to break the rules. I have some pomegranates, some highbush blueberries, uh, some figs, and uh, some, some small peach trees. They're all in pots right now. Why? I have to move them. To Arkansas, So I was able to use them, get a little bit of production out of them, take care of them for a couple of years, and now they're healthier and bigger than they were if I would have bought them straight out of a nursery. I also got them because I got them all on sale. Uh, what I did is I just watched the nurseries. And right at the end of the big planting season, everything they had left, they just put on sale. Uh, so, like the peach trees I actually got in the fall. I got two patio peaches for 20 bucks, Not 20 bucks each, 20 bucks for two. They were down to 20 bucks, buy one, get one free to get rid of them. So they're in pots, but now I have to, when I take them up there and I plant them, I've got to make sure these roots that are, these large roots that are circling need to be pruned off or I can choke the tree or the bush to death. Not as big a deal with something like a blueberry, right? Anything that doesn't get a big trunk. Uh, it's still a problem, but it's not as likely to, to happen. But a tree, especially a filbert, a filbert is fairly large. Uh, you, you'd want to get them in the ground as early as possible. Let's go take another one. Quick little easy one here. Um, hi, Jack. Just a comment about barting. You once said the alcohol, you, you, to have alcohol or make it to barter. I've always read this, but being, uh, th about this being bad because who wants a bunch of drunk rednecks shooting up your camp? Also, ammo is a bad barter tool because, uh, now the guy can shoot and rob you. Uh, just a few words from a different view. Uh, really enjoy your podcast. Be an MSB member soon. Uh, so Mike, thanks for the comment, but I just don't agree. Um, unless you're dumb. Alright, so if uh, 15 guys show up carrying guns with no ammo 
and look kind of sorty, and we're in the middle of the shit-hit-the-fan situation from hell, and they say, hey, man, we'd like to barter for some ammo, um, maybe they say we don't have any uh, ammo to spare. We do have some ammo to shoot you with, but not to spare. And that's the extreme. And if the same 15 guys show up and they want you know, a, a couple cases of homebrew, maybe you don't barter that with them. It doesn't mean you don't have them. It doesn't mean they're not barter tools. Because, again, please, please, please pull your head out of the road, warrior. Everybody, stop it. Not just Mike, and I'm Mike, I'm not coming down on you. I'm just saying everybody. Pull your head out of FEMA camps. Pull your head out of Alex Jones' fourth point of contact. Seriously. And let's look at what's really happened in real disasters in the past 500 years. Let's look at disasters in the past 10 years. You want your neighbor, because you got your arm broke when a tree came through your house, to clean out your driveway first so you can get your vehicles out during a hurricane? A six-pack of beer will do that like that. Much faster than a $20 bill in that scenario. All right? Ammo is a tool for barter, yes. It is a currency. In that long-term shit at the fan you're also worried about, that ammo may be more about replacing dollar bills than somebody ever putting it in a gun. It, it, it's all situational. So, and I, I, again, I don't know if people get what shit at the fan means when they think that way. So I'm going to barter with somebody, and I'm going to barter them some alcohol. And now I'm going to have a, quote, bunch of drunks shooting up my camp, unquote. Okay, first of all, what camp are you talking about? Do you think everybody's going to be hanging out like in the state forest or what? You know? We're talking about, a, a, you know, your fallback location at this point. If you were there, hope to God you have one or you teamed up with somebody that did. All right, now, how much exactly do you think you're going to be bartering? I mean, how valuable? Let's look at it this way. How valuable would be a, a fifth of whiskey in this scenario? How many people are going to get drunk and shoot up your camp on one bottle of whiskey when it's that valuable and hard to come by? Or two six-packs of homebrew? Or a, a pint of whiskey? Or a pint of vodka? See, the problem is that people think in tomorrow's disaster and in today's context, no one can afford to get them and all their buddies drunk and shoot up a camp when... It costs so dearly to get that pint of vodka or to get that one box of 3006 or one box of 308 or 10 rounds of 9mm. We, we have to think, if you're, if you're gonna go there, if you're gonna go ahead and go, okay, let's, what, what if it is like the Road Warrior? Then you have to think, what is that scenario really like? What, what actually happens in that scenario? How likely are today's problems to exist in tomorrow's complete disaster-filled world? And the answer is they're not. You're trying to take regular times and merge them with the most hard times we can come up with. And again, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that in general, in times of disaster, people band together, they stick together, they police their own neighborhoods. The idiots out there, most of them will get somewhat of a clue if we ever get into that situation. And the ones that don't won't be a problem for long. I hate to put it that way, but it's the truth. So if you can find someone that's still around, that grew up especially kind of in a rural area during the Great Depression, ask them how much bartering went on for alcohol and ammunition during the Great Depression. And I think we need to look more at things like that than what Hollywood puts out for us. You know, water world and guys are running around on jet skis. How long do you think that would really last? Seriously. I mean, we just have to think a little bit beyond what the TV tells us and what the people in this industry tell us that are more worried about selling us on fear than empowering us for life. Now as I go to the next one, I have to tell you one of those end times, apocalyptic sounding things. Peak oil's here, or at least it will be by 2013. Um, we can debate this till we're blue in the face. But again, I, don't, I even want to mitigate this, but I do want to report this one. Um, this was sent to me by, doesn't say a name, SM, SBM is the uh, first three initials of the email. So S, we'll call them SBM. SBM says, just wanted to give, you the, give this on oil production. 
Morgan Stanley's research states that oil production will be outpaced by demand by sometime in 2013. Basic economics tells us what happens after that. Uh, I agree with basic economics telling us what happens after that. I, I don't know how many people that are in the prepper community understand what that actually means, but let's read the report first. Uh, again, this is, uh, this is from Morgan Stanley. It's on Business Insider Money Game. And it, the headline is, if you think the oil spike is temporary, check out this chart. The oil price spike is going to be anything but short-lived if you believe a chart from Morgan Stanley. It details uh, how by the year 2013, there's not going to be any excess supply in the system. That means that even if the Saudis aren't lying about being able to wrap up production, like Jim Rogers says, actually like the Saudis say in those cables released in WikiLeaks, I'm going to talk about WikiLeaks here in a second again. I, I Some of these people out here, I want to smack. I'm, I'll leave it. Let's let's get this one covered first. Um, they've only got two more years to do so before the spare capacity evaporates. So beyond the Middle East instability trend, there's a much bigger problem lurking. Uh, and so again, this is from Morgan Stanley. Now, is Morgan Stanley right about everything? Um, no. I don't even need to play the Jeopardy music on that question, do I? Uh, how many people got their asses kicked in the market because they listened to people from Morgan Stanley other than crazy people like, you know, uh, Jack Spierko? It said in 2008, get out, get out, get out, get out. Um, so they're not always right. But on something like this, the long-term trends, they're usually not far off. And uh, I'll just say, you know, you can look at this chart. I want to say something about charts in general whether they're oil charts or climate change charts, it's all about the way you set the access with a chart. Uh, you look at this chart and you see this little dip and then this big spike and then this big drop. Um, but you're looking at relatively small percentages. So please, whenever you're looking at a chart, uh, remember that how we set the axis, how we set the scale, is everything to what message the chart conveys. In other words, I can show you a climate change chart and it looks like this big hockey stick. Or I can actually set the axis to something meaningful like one degree intervals and then it barely goes up at all. Alright, so please understand that when you look at this. But I want to talk to you about what does basic economics actually say that this means? Does it mean that There'll be no oil, and everybody's going to die, and everybody's going to freeze to death, and there'll be riots in every city in, in the world, and the, the peak oil people that have been freaking out about that have been right, and, and the world is going to end in 2013. No. It means everything's going to cost more money. And you're going to have to make hard decisions about what you spend money on, and gas is going to cost a lot more, and energy as a whole is going to cost a lot more, and people are going to have to decide what they really want versus having everything they think they want. That's really what it means. And there's years of this before a shortage is sufficient to choke the system off as a whole, and there's a lot of time and a lot of incentive for humanity to figure out something else to do with ourselves. But we're going to have a lot of flux, a lot of change, a lot of problems, and a lot of hard decisions to make in there. Will there be individual places where there'll be rioting? Yes. Will there be places where maybe a city will burn? Maybe some union will get really pissed off because they had their pensions cut and burn down a city hall? Yeah. Will there be martial law as a result of that? You bet. Could it cascade into utter disgrace? Or utter, uh, other fa utter failure? Yeah, will it? Probably not, because it's not the way history works. You start studying history, all of these, these, these scenarios always tend to play themselves out differently. But if you think peak oil is a hoax, um, well, at least Morgan Stanley says it's not. Um, next question here. Uh, Jack, you've been quite open about your personal goals, moving to Arkansas and the projects you have planned, but what about the Survival Podcast? What can we expect one year from now, five years from now? Will you be more involved with ma manufacturing, marketing of products, of books, videos, seminars? Where is TSP headed? Um, it's not headed to a global corporation. It's not headed to a massive business with a huge staff. It's not headed to any of that because I don't want it in my life. It is headed for more than it is today. And here's some of the things that we have planned. One, Nick Lido and I are working really hard. Uh, Nick, of course, is the guy that I selected to build and, and, and build up, SaveOurSkills.com, and he's done a great job with that. And we're working on a new project called the Survival Channel. 
And we are headed toward a point where there will be other shows integrated with the Survival Podcast, with Nick's podcast, uh, with some other folks we've already started talking to into the Survival Channel. And the Survival Channel will uh, be far more scalable than just my podcast and bring to you things that are specific maybe to the RV industry and traveling, uh, things that are specific to more specific to permaculture and gardening, things that are more specific to hunting, things that are more specific to firearms. Uh, and anybody that's part of that will still control their own content, their own website, and be free to use their content in other places and other ways. But this site will be set up kind of like a streaming radio station. It will always be something on And that's one of the big goals. As we move to Arkansas, one of the things I finally decided, lockdown, we are going to do is we're going to get some office space. So I'm looking at four different office space places the next time we go up there, and I'm going to pick an office. And we're going to jokingly call it Survival Podcast Global Headquarters. It's really going to be a four to 500 square foot office where I can keep all my crap and get some separation between my personal life and the Survival Podcast. And one thing you can I expect to see changes. You won't be getting answers uh, from your customer service inquiries at 9 o'clock at night and midnight anymore. Uh, I am going to take that out of my life. I'm going to batch my emails. And some people just might have to wait you know, until business hours to get a response. And uh, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair way to run a business. And I am going to be bringing my wife in, and she's going to be doing a lot to help me do a lot more interviews. I want to do so much more with interviews. I mean, if I could bring you guys two I mean, not crappy, just anybody I can get, but two world-class interviews a week uh, that are not, you know, I'd love to get a guy like Ron Paul on. I mean, honestly, I would. But if we do, uh, and it'd be a great thing for the show and all, but we're going to talk about the same things he talks about everywhere. I want to get people on that are doing things, that are getting things done, that have methods. The, the thing that's made this show successful is is a variety of things. One is I do it every day. That, that, without that, it, it wouldn't be what it is. Two is you, the audience. But, but what made the, those two things come together and work together, because you and I work together to build this site and to build this show and to build everything that it is. And we really do. And I really appreciate every one of you and thank you so much for everything you've done. And I try to say it a lot and I probably don't say it enough. I feel so blessed that every one of you is involved with this show, even if you just listen every day, because what you're doing matters. But the, the thing that made those two work together is I tell you things you can do. Every other radio talent out there on the mainstream radio, very few of them focus on what you can do, and if they do, they're people like Howard, Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor on Gardening. He's on once a week on Saturdays on AM radio. When you look at mainstream radio during the morning and the evening drive, we talk about politics, we talk about sports, everybody bitches, everybody complains, everybody comes up with a theory, but nobody says, go to your home and do these things. So everything I do from here forward is going to be based on what you can do. And it's why I'm kicking around the idea of backing off the emails. You know, I, I did one show on a Tuesday instead of a Monday like today's. And a guy wrote in and he called it Newsday Tuesday. And I'm not picking on him or anything. I'm just thinking, I don't want to have Newsday anything. I, I don't want to be a source of, of, of your news. I, I want to talk about it once in a while because it affects us. But I want to stay 100% focused on what the hell you can do for your life to make your life better. Because if I'm not doing that, all I'm doing is entertaining you and angering you. And you can get entertainment and anger anywhere. And I want to bring shows into the Survival Channel like that. And I want to bring guests on the Survival Podcast like that. Um, if you want to be a guest, if you think you're that person, email me. Uh, pitch me. Don't say, I can talk about anything from this to that. Say, I want to be on your show. I want to talk about this subject. Here's why I know about it. And here's the times of day and the days that I'm usually available. I'll get you on the schedule. I'll get you on the show. And if you have a business, you'll get a good plug for your business. If you think your show would be a good fit for the Survival Channel, uh, email Nick at SaveOurSkills.com. He's heading that. He's the captain of that ship. These are the things the Survival Podcast is going to do going forward. Um, seminars, yeah, yeah, um, probably more like gatherings. And a lot of those are going on individually right now. People are doing them themselves. Uh, I want to start showing up at some of those, but long-term uh, SIS and TW who run the, uh, the gear shop are looking to get out of California and get some land maybe in Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, Arkansas, somewhere in that area, and have a place that they live, a homestead, and then have just a big piece of land uh, that we could use for like national-level events, uh, big-time training from one end to the other, from from the practical to the tactical, that's that type of thing. Uh, we're looking at other resources to do that. Uh, videos, 
I don't know. I mean, most of my videos are going to go on YouTube. If I take the time to put a video out, I want everybody to see it. Um, I might do some instructional videos on a few subjects. Books, I'm a terrible author. I have two books halfway done. Uh, I've had two books halfway done for um, for over a year. Uh, hopefully, I'll get both of those done and we'll go somewhere with them. And I wrote a book um, that I feel is done but not finished. And it's available for free at trtam.com. Um, so these are the things that, that are going on going forward. What you're not going to see is I'm not trying to do what Gary Vaynerchuk's trying to do. I actually was at the point where I could have become that guy, and I'm going the other direction. I want autonomy, freedom, I want independence, I want complete freedom with what I do and my brand, and I want my scalability to be the people that are involved in the scalability get the lion's share of things, and I get a little piece for helping them get off the ground. And if I can help enough people that way, I can have everything I want and more, and I can give more to charity, and I can give more back to this community. And that's I hope that's what you've seen from the show up till now. It's always been about giving more back to the community. It's always been about what else can I do to make things better for you. So five years, ten years from now, you've got five to ten years more of me trying to make things better for you, but always focused on what you can do. Instead of instead of what I think or how angry I want you to be about something uh, or something to that effect. Let's take another one of your emails. So I get this email, and it's something that was supposedly published in the Washington Post. And uh, because of its nature, I'm not going to give it away yet because I want, I want there to be kind of an impact at the end of this. I want you to, to, to really feel this and realize some level of uh, irony to this. Uh, but I, I could not find the original article from the Washington Post, and when you hear the full story, you'll probably understand why. But what I found is the source. And the source is from NOAA, um, which, of course, is the uh, the uh, National uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So who's that? Uh, the weather people. The weather people, right? And uh, they keep these things called archives, and they've been around for a while, and I'll leave it to you to figure out when this... Uh, particular stories from this is off the uh, the NOAA archives and supposedly this was published in the Washington Post and I'm going to read it to you instead of what supposedly the, the excerpts the Post published I'm going to read to you the actual report from NOAA and then I'm going to tell you when it's from the Arctic seems to be warming up from fishermen seal hunters and explorers who sail the seas about Spitsbergen uh, and the eastern Arctic all point to a radical change in climatic conditions and hitherto unheard of high temperatures in that part of the Earth's surface. In August, the Norwegian Department of Commerce sent an exploration of Spitsbergen and Bear Island under the leadership of Dr. Adolf Hull, lecturer on geology at the University of Christiana. Uh, its purpose was to survey and chart the lands adjacent to the Norwegian uh, mines on those islands, take soundings of the adjacent waters, and make other oceanographic investigations. Dr. Hull, who has just returned, reports the location of hitherto unknown coal deposits on the eastern shores of Advent Bay, deposits of vast, uh, of vast extent and superior quality. This was regarded as of first importance as so far uh, most of the coal mined by Norwegian companies on those islands has not been of the best quality. Uh, the oceanographic observations have, however, been even more interesting. Ice conditions were exceptional. In fact, so little ice has never been noted. Uh, the expedition all but established a record, sailing as far north as 81 degrees uh, in fresh in, in the ice-free water. This is the furthest north ever reached with modern oceanographic apparatus. The character of the waters was uh, of the Great Polar Basin has uh, been practically unknown. Dr. Hull uh, reports that he made a section of the Gulf measured. He made a section of the Gulf Stream at 81 degrees north latitude and took soundings of a depth of 3,100 meters. These show the Gulf Stream very warm, and it could be traced as the, as a surface current till beyond the 81st parallel. That's way north, folks. Okay, 81 degrees north. Uh, if you want to put that in perspective, the North Pole, and there's, there's reasons this isn't exactly true because the Earth isn't a perfect sphere and some of you science propeller heads are going to get all wound in a knot, but the North Pole's at 90 degrees. All right, so 81 degrees is only 9 degrees away from the North Pole. The ice is melted here. You, you get the picture. It's extremely warm. Oh, my God, it's, 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 it's global warming. Uh, the Gulf Stream is up there, and, and, and we've got all these problems. Let me keep reading for you. 
Um, later, a section was taken of the Gulf Stream off Bear Island and off uh, I, some fjord, as well as a section of the cold current that comes down along the west coast of Spitsbergen and off the, Cope, the coast of uh, South Cape. Uh, in connection with Dr. Hull's report, it is of interest to note that unusually warm summer in Arctic Norway and the observations of Captain Martin Interbregen, who has sailed uh, the eastern Arctic for 54 years. He says that he, he first noticed the warmer conditions in uh, a certain year I won't give, and that since that time it has steadily gotten warmer, and that today the Arctic of the region is not recognizable as the same region of what would amount to, let's say, five years ago. So it's changed so much in the last five years uh, that you can't even recognize it anymore. Let me keep reading. This is alarming global warming, folks. Very, very alarming. I mean, Al Gore, uh, you know, he's right. Listen, listen. This is this is the part where it really gets interesting. Many old landmarks are so changed as to be unrecognizable. Where formerly great masses of ice were found, there are now often uh, morans and accumulations of earth and stone. The ice is gone. It's melting off of, you know, Norway and Greenland and places like that. Uh, at many points where glaciers formerly extended far into the sea, they have entirely disappeared. The glaciers are vanishing. Uh, the change in temperature, says Captain Innerbergen, has also brought about a great change in the flora and fauna of the Arctic. Oh my God, the plant life is changing. Uh, and the and the animals too. Uh, this summer he sought for whitefish in Spitsbergen waters. Formerly great shoals of them were found here. This year he saw none, although he visited all the old fishing grounds. There were few seal in Spitsbergen waters this year, the catch being far under the average. This, however, did not surprise the captain. He pointed out that formerly the waters about Spitsbergen held an even held an even summer temperature of about 3 degrees centigrade. This year the recorded temperature is up to 15 degrees. And the last winter the ocean did not freeze over, even on the north coast of Spitsbergen. With the disappearance of whitefish and seal has come other life in these waters. This year herring and great shoals were found along the west coast of Spitsbergen. All the way from the fry to the veritable great herring, shoals of smelt were also met with. So... Everything's screwed up in the Arctic. It's it's so warm, the ice is melting. It's 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 went from three degree water temperatures centigrade to fifteen degrees. That's a that's a that's a twelve degree what was it three yeah twelve degrees higher twelve degrees. Oh, oh my I, I I I'm sorry folks I'm so sorry I've been wrong about this global warming. Uh, it is happening and it's been happening since when uh, this entry was made on October tenth nineteen twenty two. It is, again, from the NOAA.gov archives. I will provide a link for it to you today. You can read it all yourself. I've made nothing up. And this is what I'm saying about global warming. Yes, it gets warmer. Yes, it gets colder. Your breath and your Humvee's exhaust are not why. There are many things that man is doing to screw up our planet. Uh, CO2 is not one of them. Please, if you are a true believer, please download this PDF again from the NOAA archives. It is not, you know, false. I can't upload a fake phony document to the NOAA archives. I don't have access to that. Download it, read it for yourself, and see how many things you hear them talking about in 1922 that they're using today to convince you the world is going to end, the ice is going to melt, and the polar bears are going to invade Brooklyn. All right? Um, that's probably the last time I'm going to talk about global warming for about six months. I'm getting bored with it. Uh, but I do just think that the deception is very dangerous because what it's all about is a global tax and a great way to create a new fiat money system. And that's what carbon credits are. And the last thing we need is a new fiat money system and an already destroyed economy. Uh, let's go ahead and take another uh, one of your emails. Here's an interesting question. Um, says, this is from Matthew. Matthew says, if Jack, Jack, if banks can create money, uh, then why have there been so many failures and closures in banks in the last couple of years? From what I understand, they lent out money. The borrowers couldn't, wouldn't pay the back, so they became insolvent. So what happened to the money created? I've listened to your episodes 538 and 539 many times. I've read your ebook, The Truth About Money. Thanks so much for the information. And I, I've already emailed Matthew back, and I think he had a misunderstanding about what I mean about banks creating money. I think he Somehow, and I don't know how if you listened to those episodes or read the book, got this, but that somehow they actually created money like bills. Like they printed it like the Treasury does. You know, notes. Um, banks don't create money that way. When you borrow money from a bank to buy, let's say, a $100,000 house, your signature creates the money. It actually creates it out of thin air. It's a journal entry. It's an electronic 
transaction. And then they take your promissory note for $100,000 plus interest, which may total as much as maybe $300,000 in payments due. They put that on their banks as an asset that they can then loan against as well. What people believe about banks, it's absolutely not true, is let's say I'm a bank, and um, Jack Spierko walked into my bank today, and he put $200,000 in the bank. And I can loan up to 90% of his $200,000. So in walks you, and you say, I want to borrow $100,000. So uh, that's only 50% of Jack Spierko's $200,000. He has a deposit with me. So I take $100,000 of his deposits, and I give it to you in the form of a loan, and you buy your house with it. That is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely not the way a bank loans money. They keep my $200,000. They can loan out up to 90% of that, or $180,000, without taking my money. They create the new 180. I, I know this is hard to grasp. I know that it doesn't seem to make any sense at all, because it's absolutely insane. But it's the way fractional reserve banking works. Again, you can look up, um, putting it simply. Uh, is is a great publication to read um, if you if you want to look that up and there's there's a lot of other things from the Federal Reserve uh, themselves that are actually uh, really clear about this is the way things work. Another great publication you could look at is called the Two Faces of Death. Two Faces of Death. Two Faces of Debt. They should call it death. Um, it's put out by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. So you can, I mean, there's plenty of places to get this information. The money is actually created. So how does, if the bank can create money, how does it fail? That's a legitimate question. Well, if they create the money by loaning it, what happens when the loan is repaid or the person defaults? What happens to the asset? It, it, it disintegrates. When you pay off a debt, the money is destroyed. The only thing the bank can do is use the, the, the repayments to create a new loan to make more money. That's why we're a credit-driven economy. Right? That's why we're not really a consumer-driven economy like they tell us. We're a credit-driven economy. Because money, actually, we create deflation, which it can be just as bad as inflation when we pay off debt because it's a debt-based currency. So if all money's based on debt, what happens when we eliminate the debt? The currency dissolves. So we can't pay the debt off. If we tried to pay the debt off, we would disintegrate money to zero and still owe money. Because debt is never, you know, principal is always going to be less than principal plus interest. And all the money comes from debt. So what happens is the bank loans out money to you, and you default, and now they're in the hole for that money. Now, as long as they have enough other places where cash flow coming in, and enough other deposits, they can keep this going. And they can make new money. They can just write another loan until they have no one they can write a loan to anymore. Because everybody either doesn't qualify for a loan or they know they're not going to get paid back by them or nobody even wants the money because everybody that is qualified has already taken out a loan for all the money they want. Now the printing press, in theory, breaks down. So that's what happens. It's really that simple. I know it sounds complex, but if you'll just accept this fact, when you borrow money for a bank, they don't give you money. They create money. They use your signature to create a promissory note that has value and that allows them to put numbers in a computer that say you've received money. If you'll accept that, all the rest of it makes sense. And again, I understand why people don't want to accept it. it it's, it's insane. It's how it works. Um, on money and real value, um, I have been waiting for someone of this stature to write something like this for a very, very long time, Gary North. I have talked about how gold is a valuable thing. It's something you should store. It should be something uh, that you make part of your plans for the future, but it has no intrinsic value. It is not money. It is simply a commodity. Um, and of all people, Gary North now seems to back up what I've been saying. Let me read this to you. This is on lourockwell.com by Gary North. And um, I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just going to read part of it and give you a link to the rest of it. Uh, just the first part. Gold is a valuable thing to store, however, it is not a store of value. Gold has intrinsic properties that make it valuable, however, it does not have intrinsic value. I mention this because at some point you will read about gold as a store of value. You will read about gold's intrinsic value. Every time you read either of these phrases, you will know the author does not understand economic theory. Consider this. The price of gold has moved above $1,400 an ounce in recent days, up from $1,300. 
Presumably, this has been in response to the turmoil in Libya, which has reduced the immediate supply of oil. The rising price of gold indicates the possible continuing turmoil in the Arab world. These fluctuations in the price of gold indicate an immediate change indicate that immediate changes in external circumstances can affect the price of gold. There has been an unexpected increase in the demand for gold. According to all schools of economics except for Marxists, the price of goods and services rise and fall in terms of changes in the markets, which include consumers' tastes, monetary changes, changes in supply, changes in the price of alternatives, and changes in the public's expectation of future prices. There is therefore no fixed measure of value. Economic value is subjective. It is inputted. Buyers compete against buyers. Sellers compete against sellers. And people's assessments of future conditions are always changing. These changes drive prices up and down. People have subjective assessments of objective futures. They also have expectations regarding other people's subjective assessments of the future. Through competitive bidding, people establish objective prices in various markets. The important fact to understand here is that the objective prices are the result of competitive bids by people with subjective assessments for the future, immediate and more distant assessments. So that very complex, very spot-on explanation by Gary North tells you what? Well, not just that gold is not the only form of real money, or gold is not money, or gold is not intrinsically valuable. It is simply a valuable thing based on all of those things. It tells you what I've tried to simplify. And say so many times to you now, so that you will understand money. Because if you don't understand money, it will overrule your life. It will control... you either the master of money or money is the master of you. You cannot master anything without understanding it. Money is an agreement between members of a society. And it is nothing more. The agreement itself is the money. It doesn't matter whether we use gold, golden promises, or golden parachutes as the currency... It is the agreement between you and me to see a value in one thing that I hand to you in exchange for another that gives any commodity its value. And all money is is that agreement. And we can create symbology around that agreement, put real fancy decorative things on it, and call it a Federal Reserve note, or we can stamp gold into coin and, and make that the symbol, but it's still subjective, it's still about everybody's agreement, and the minute the confidence in the currency fails, the currency itself fails. So read the rest of this article by Gary North. Gary and I agree on a lot. We disagree on certain things, but uh, this one I think we completely agree on. I'd be interested to get your comments to this, but please don't comment just to my statements today. Read the whole article by Gary first, and, re and then comment in regard to not just my view, but Gary's as well. Love to hear that in the uh, blog today. Last question. Uh, last question? What's a question? Um, is that a, a Christian with a question? Is a Christian? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, guys, um, long week last week. That's why I'm having some uh, word uh, problems once in a while. Anyway, last question today uh, comes from John. John says, hi, I've been thinking about building a worm bin to vermicompost in my apartment. I was wondering what your thoughts were. Love uh, love your show. Thanks for what you do. Okay, John, um, my understanding is there's no reason not to. You can put together a simple vermicomposting bin, and they don't stink, and they don't smell, and you get worm tea, and you get worm castings, and it's great fertilizer. And it's probably one bin is going to do everything you need for like a container garden out on your porch, which if you're in an apartment is probably all that you have. So it's probably a great idea. Can I absolutely say for certain, 100%, that if you put one of these bins in your house somewhere, it's not going to create any odors? No. Why not? I've never done one. I've done vermicomposting. Haven't done it in my house because I haven't had to. Um, so I think it's really up to you. I would say this, though. Um... I've seen so many people do it. I can't see how it's a problem. And it, it, it's going to take up not very much space. And if you're living in a park, it's probably you or you and one other person. And you're not producing that much waste. And if you do start to produce more waste uh, than the worms can consume, then do whatever you're doing with it now, whatever that may be. And it may be an environmentally friendly thing you're doing or not so. But you're, you know, my point is if you get rid of 80% of your waste this way, it's 80% less than it's going into the normal system. So I think it's a great idea. I think it's something you probably should do. And um, if you want to kind of like take out the guesswork, uh, since you're living in an apartment, it may make sense to uh, go ahead and buy a pre-made system. There's a lot of plans out there and ways they can be done, but you know maybe if you bought one that was already set up and ready to go, it might get you off to a quicker start. But 
You can also build one. There's lots of ways to do it with Rubbermaid tubs and things like that. But if you do do it, post some pictures on our forum. Let us know about what you're doing. I'm sure other people would like to see it. And uh, if you vermicompost and you do it in your home and you'd like to comment on whether or not you get any problems with odors, please do in today's show notes at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Look up today's episode, again, 618, and do that. And, folks, please, when you have objections to my, you know, unless you're going to be nasty or insulting, because um, then you're going to get your ass banned and not be able to post on my blog. But uh, when you have things you want to say about the episode or suggestions, don't email me. Right? Not that I don't want your emails. Don't take that the wrong way. But if I get 200 to 600 emails a day, which I do, I can't cover them all. I just can't do it. I can't get back at them all. Put it on the blog. So, like, you know, if somebody asked a question, I didn't fully answer it. Or you have another resource. If you put it on the blog, that person can use that resource. They, they can find out more information, and so can everybody else. Uh, that's what social media is all about. I think we, we hear social media, we think of Facebook, and we think of Twitter, and we think of YouTube. And we don't realize that blogs are like the, you know, blogs and forums are the original social media. They were the original way that people connected, and they're still very valuable. So, you know, come on onto the blog and, and, and comment. Uh, we get some great threads going there. The one rule, you don't insult people on my blog. You don't insult me, and you don't insult other posters. So, it's a safe place to post. You can disagree with ideas. You can debate ideas. But you, 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 you do not insult the person for having the opinion. We don't do that here. We insult politicians here because they're worthy of it and they're public figures. Private citizens, we don't insult each other. All right, with that, I am going to wrap up today. Hopefully today was a good show. And again, I want to hear from you. Would you like to hear more call-ins? I know if I do more, I'm going to get more calls. Would you like me to see me push this more toward a call-in show? Or would you like to see things kind of stay the way they are with email shows on Monday and call-in shows on Friday. Let me know. I do want to hear from you. I want to give you the best show possible. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you